Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Sister Susan K. Wood, SCL, Theology Department Chair at Marquette University, giving a talk entitled, The Dialogue of Faith and Reason. Sister Wood's talk was part of the Fidelity and Freedom series at Franciscan University of Steubenville. This symposium on John Paul II's Apostolic Constitution Ex Cordia Ecclesiae provides the context of these remarks on the relationship between faith and reason. The intellectual history of the relationship between faith and reason runs long and deep. So the focus of my comments will not be so much the epistemological relationship of the two, but rather how the two interrelate within a Catholic university, because I think that's the focus of the series. This translates into how theology interrelates with the other disciplines within a university. I propose the thesis that Catholic universities are places where the church does its thinking. Furthermore, good thinking requires that both theology and the church look beyond themselves. Theology must look beyond itself to other areas of knowledge if it is to offer an integrated vision of creation, anthropology, and history. The church requires this if it is to engage in mission as opposed to mere self-maintenance. Bernard Lonergan urged theologians to seek integration with the other human sciences so that the church might, quote, remove from its action the widespread impression of complacent irrelevance and futility. It's a little harsh, isn't it? If the church is to be truly Catholic, it needs not only to be open to all truth, but engaged with all truth, so that it may be a leaven within society. In support of this position, we need only to think of the contribution of Thomas Aquinas, whose work originated not in a seminary or a monastery, but at a university, where he engaged with the new world represented by Aristotelian philosophy and Arabic science. We might also remember that Thomas was suspect in his own time for doing this. At his time in history, the university still had close connections with the church. The medieval university had charters from the church and was under church control. It was a clerical institution, and the intellectuals of the period, with few exceptions, were clerics. There were four faculties in these universities, theology, arts, medicine, and law. Theology was then queen of the faculties, but by this time, science had become secular. And things have really changed, haven't they? Universities are not the only place where the church, church's thinking occurs, but they are privileged places because of the confluence of culture in both its contemporary and historical dimensions, church, science, belief, literary and artistic expressions of human experience, and theological reflection that occurs in the modern university. From this perspective, I wish to explore what this rich confluence contributes, contributes to faith. In addition to the thesis that the Catholic University is where the church does its thinking, a second thesis is that faith is richer for the encounter with the secularity of the world as encountered in the non-theological disciplines. Of course, we would also say that faith adds a depth to secular knowledge by providing, among other things, a telos, that means an end, um, and a unitive worldview. But from the thesis that Catholic universities are places where the church does its thinking, 
My emphasis will be on how the university enriches the church's understanding of the faith. Anselm defined theology as fides quarens intellectum, faith seeking understanding. This does not mean that understanding replaces faith any more than the secular disciplines of a Catholic university obviate the need or desire for a theology department. Okay, my next section is on typologies of the relationship between faith and reason. Cardinal Avery Dulles, famous for his uses of typologies, do you remember his models of the church, models of revelation? Well, he has models of faith and reason. He comments that theologians may be divided into three categories. Those who see faith and reason as antagonistic, those who see them as pertaining to two separate spheres, and those who opt for a harmony between the two, some regarding faith as a higher form of knowledge and others looking upon faith as needing to be perfected by reason. The truism articulated by Catholics is that reason and faith, rightly understood and interpreted, cannot contradict one another because God is the author of both and cannot deny himself, nor can truth contradict truth. And that you can look at the catechism, you can also look at Gaudium et Spes, which says the same thing. But what faith and which reason, we may ask? Dulles hastens to acknowledge that the equivocal use of the notion of faith makes it difficult to categorize its relationship with reason. It can mean, for example, assent to doctrine, a unit of experience, a heartfelt trust in Christ, or a commitment to a certain style of action. Similarly, the notion reason may designate a number of different operations a contemplative or intuitive reason, a discursive reason, whether inductive or deductive, explicit reason, or implicit or tacit reason. This is further complicated by whether or not reason is understood as a power belonging to nature in a pure state, as a capacity of fallen nature, or as a faculty illuminated and elevated by grace. Reason is an attribute of humanity and the basis of language, freedom, creativity, the search for knowledge, the experience of art, and the actualization of moral commands. Without reason, participation in community is not possible. As Paul Tillich states, only a being who has the structure of reason is able to be ultimately concerned, to distinguish ultimate and preliminary concerns, to understand the unconditional commands of the ethical imperative, and to be aware of the presence of the holy. That's by a very liberal Protestant. Faith is not the opposite of reason. Both extreme fetism and extreme rationalism have incurred ecclesiastical censures. Thus, we must reject Dulles's first typology, the antagonism of faith and reason, especially if one is chosen at the exclusion of the other. Likewise, they cannot simply exist in separate spheres, never intersecting with one another, for reason itself judges whether or not there are sufficient grounds for revelation to be accepted as true, that is, as credible and worthy of belief. As for Dulles' third typology, I would not say, as some would suggest, that faith is perfected by reason. That language doesn't strike me as quite right. But I do hold that faith, defined as the acceptance of revelation in whatever modality it is received, is not articulated reflected upon, interpreted, or communicated apart from reason. Faith is not primarily epistemic, that is, a source of knowledge, but is more basically a love for God and a volitional impulse 
to do as God wills. In this sense, faith is a first order, primary experience, articulated, reflected, and communicated faith is a second order experience, necessitating reason. This relationship is analogous to how liturgical worship is primary theology and subsequent reflection upon that experience is a second order activity, what Aidan Kavanaugh calls secondary theology. Primary theology is prayer and contemplation as distinguished from secondary theological reasoning. Systematic theology forms propositions about the encounter between God and the world enacted within liturgical rites. Similarly, I hold, faith is the acceptance by intellect and will that responds in love, trust, and fidelity to God's self-communication in revelation. Neither self-reflection on that experience nor communication of that encounter occurs apart from reason. Paul Tillich provides yet another interpretation of the interrelationship between faith and reason. For him, reason is the presupposition of faith, and faith is the fulfillment of reason. He describes the interrelationship of the two saying, quote, faith is the act in which reason reaches ecstatically beyond itself, end of quote. Reason is finite, but the human person experiences being grasped by what Tillich calls an ultimate concern and driven beyond himself or herself. A person's awareness of his or her potential infinity, this awareness appearing as ultimate concern, appears to a person as faith. Tillich says that the ecstatic experience of an ultimate concern does not destroy the structure of reason, since this experience of being driven beyond oneself, what he calls ecstasy, is fulfilled, not denied, rationality. And I think I probably need to explain that fertility. Um, when we talk about ecstasy, we're not just simply talking about a huge emotional experience, but we're talking about a standing out from oneself in the little etymology of the word. He acknowledges that a state of estrangement from a person's true nature can lead to distorted reason and idolatrous faith, but finds the solution in a revelatory experience. So revelation corrects faith and corrects reason. He defines revelation as, quote, the experience in which an ultimate concern grasps the human mind and creates a community. This is really interesting that community is created in this act activity, in which this concern expresses itself in symbols of action, imagination, and thought. Now, this is all very abstract kind of language. But to make it concrete, Christianity claims to be based on this revelation and the community created by the revelation is the church. So he's speaking in general philosophical language, if you will, but um, you can find reference to it in, our, in what we concretely uh, know as revelation in church. To go back to Dulles, Dulles observes that when Thomas contrasts the two terms, that is faith and reason, they are particularly interested in the relationship between the natural and the supernatural, reason being a cipher for natural knowledge and faith for supernatural knowledge. So faith and reason, we can talk about the capacity to believe and we can talk about the capacity to reason or to think, but when you have a conference on these two words, they, those words themselves are symbols of whole universes. And so for Thomas, it's a symbol, or kind of a shorthand, you know, for talking about nature and the supernatural. And once we accept this shorthand, 
we are off and running, literally. For the relationship between faith and reason becomes analogous to the relationship between nature and grace, or church and world, or reason and revelation. So we have all kinds of dyads. Uh, we ask, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Tertullian said that first. In the context of a Catholic university, this question inquires into the proper relationship between secular learning and Christian commitment and thought. What is the relation between the church and the secular academy? Or in our context, between the church and a Catholic university? What is the relationship between theology and the secular disciplines of a Catholic university? How does Athens enrich Jerusalem? And what does Jerusalem bring to Athens? So now my next section is the integration of faith and reason in Catholic universities. The search for the complementarity between reason and faith in the university has not always been an easy one. John Tracy Ellis delivered a paper that was entitled American Catholics and the Intellectual Life in 1955. So we're going back to the 1950s. I know that's ancient history. And this uh, essay that he wrote became a catalyst for self-criticism among Catholic colleges and universities. Ellis attributed the primary cause of the intellectual shortcomings of American Catholics to an over-eagerness in Catholic circles for apologetics rather than pure scholarship. However, he also cites the effects of anti-Catholicism of the majority of the uh, US population of the time, the poverty and illiteracy of the Catholic immigrants, general American anti-intellectualism, and general American suspicion of its academicians, the absence of an intellectual tradition among American Catholics, and the lack of serious reading habits as contributing causes of the lack of Catholic contribution to the intellectual life. And he cites, for example, the invention of the term egghead to designate professors engaged in public affairs. He quotes John Ireland, a famous Archbishop of St. Paul, Minnesota, who five years after the Third Plenary Council of Baltimore made a plea for Catholic leadership in intellectual circles saying, and this I'm quoting um, Archbishop Ireland. He says, this is an intellectual age. It worships intellect. It tries all things by the touchstone of intellect. The church herself will be judged by the standard of intellect. Catholics must ex excel in religious knowledge. They must be in the foreground of intellectual movements of all kinds, and the age will not take kindly to religious knowledge separated from secular knowledge. Okay, we're still in the 19... Uh, uh, he's, uh, that talk was in 1905. Okay, so we're reaching back in a little bit of history here. And by the way, um, Archbishop Ireland, I have this quote in a footnote, not in the body of the text, says that seminaries are not where the church does its thing. <laughs> Alice concludes uh, his essay uh, laying the primary blame for the inadequacy of Catholic scholarship on Catholics themselves or on their, quote, frequently self-imposed ghetto mentality, which prevents them from mingling as they should with their non-Catholic colleagues, end of quote on their lack of industry and hard work, and on their failure to measure up to the tradition of Catholic learning to which they are heirs. So if you look at this history that I'm recounting, you know, you start with John Ireland in 1905, then you have John Tracy Ellis, um, and two years later, Gustav uh, Weigel, SJ, also in the 1950s, is on the same bandwagon. 
because um, Weigel outlined the continuous efforts of Christian philosophers to reconcile faith and reason in the Catholic intellectual tradition from Origen through Aquinas in a lecture to the Catholic Commission on Intellectual and Cultural Affairs. And that was in 1957. Like Ellis, Weigel attributed the deplorable failure of Catholic scholars to distinguish themselves in American university circles uh, to the apologetic approach to knowledge wherein every new scientific or literary discovery had to be reconciled with an already defined truth. That's how he was defining apologetics. Now, under the auspices of the North American region of the International Federation of Catholic Universities, a group of educators, Catholic educators, issued the Land of Lakes statement on July 23, 1967. And my understanding is this was referenced in the last um, conference on this series. But I wanted to give you the history of what led up to 67, which goes back to the 1950s and back to 1905. So that, you know, 1967 and the Land of Lakes Conference didn't just drop in out of the air. And this Land of Lakes statement articulated the relationship of the modern American Catholic University to the church and to American intellectual life. It identified the Catholic University as a community, quote, in which Catholicism is perceptively present and effectively operative. So they really were not trying to sell Catholicism down the river. It affirmed theology as a legitimate intellectual discipline and identified its primary task, and here's a quote from the Land O'Lakes statement, to engage directly in exploring the depths of Christian tradition and the total religious heritage of the world in order to come to the best possible intellectual understanding of religion and revelation of man in all his varied relationships to God. Particularly important today is the theological exploration of all human relations and the elaboration of a Christian anthropology. Furthermore, theological investigation today must serve the ecumenical goals of collaboration and unity, end of quote. So um, this is not in itself radical, I would hold. Now, what happened after this statement is that some universities chose in their hiring practices to hire for professional excellence at the expense of mission, you know, and so we're, we're living out some of that, but that was not, you know, at the heart of what Land of Lakes was articulating in terms of the relationship between faith and reason in a Catholic university, at least that's not my read of it. So the statement called for dialogue within the university so that theology would confront all the rest of modern culture in all the areas of intellectual study. It affirmed the autonomy of all the recognized uh, university areas of study and disavowed any theological or philosophical imperialism at the same time that it pointed to the philosophical and theological dimension of most intellectual subjects. Now, almost 50 years later, you know, where are we? While Catholic universities have improved their stature in the academic community, most still struggle to achieve the integration of faith and knowledge envisioned in the Land of Lakes document. The theological disciplines themselves, not to mention the various secular disciplines, have become increasingly specialized with a consequent fragmentation of knowledge. This has been accompanied by a commodification and a commercialization of knowledge in the wider university. Students increasingly choose majors for their earning power. Evaluations on ratemyprofessor.com comment whether or not a student actually has to read anything to pass a course. 
Evening television commercials advertise intensified business degrees that can be earned in a couple of years by attending class one evening a week. The hopes for dialogue, wherein theology engages all areas of intellectual study, simply has not occurred to the extent either anticipated or desired. In recognition of this intellectual fragmentation, one hears increasing calls for interdisciplinarity on college campuses today. At least that's a buzzword at Marquette. The problem is not just with theology or with faith encountering secularity, but with all knowledge being increasingly specialized and increasingly fragmented. In addition to creating campus structures and conversations that foster engagement across differences rather than perpetuating academic silos, Catholics need a contemporary intellectual framework to account for the different kinds of knowledge represented by theology in science, or theology in art, or theology and history. George Dennis O'Brien, in his 2002 book, The Idea of a Catholic University, examines the models of the church developed by Avery Dulles to determine which might offer the best vehicle for explaining the relationship between the academy and the church. The juridical model, which establishes truth on the basis of authority, represents a methodology unacceptable to the academic freedom granted to disciplinary competence. He rejects the mystical communion model as evaporating visible definition and legal restrictions, and therefore not helpful in adjudicating issues surrounding the academy and the church. O'Brien observes that while there may be anonymous Christians, there cannot be an anonymous Catholic university. Even if some universities, and this is a quote, are pretty anonymous about their Catholicity, end of quote. For O'Brien, the heraldic or prophetic model and the servant model, both of which he considers more characteristic of Protestant institutions, are liable to secularism. He finds the heraldic model more appropriate to the pulpit than the professor's podium, while rightly or wrongly, he suspects the servant model as slipping into 19th century Protestant liberalism, although I strongly suspect that liberation theology would give this a different interpretation. O'Brien opts for the sacramental model and extends this into a kind of knowing proper to faith within a Catholic university. He argues for the difference, differences in the kinds of knowing among the various disciplines within the university and identifies faith's way of knowing as sacramental such that, and he has an equation here, that Catholic university equals sacrament plus science is his shorthand. Okay, now I tried to figure out what this meant. So this is my interpretation of O'Brien. Sacramental knowledge is iconic as a way of seeing into the really real through participatory knowledge. Science or any other secular discipline provides the material stuff, the visible reality, which functions as the icon of the really real. This stuff is not itself the ult ultimate knowledge object of knowing, but the portal, as it were, into ultimate meaning. Francis C. Wade, SJ, former philosopher at Marquette University in a 1978 lecture, points to the character of this ultimate meaning as mystery when he says that a role of the Catholic University is to be an advocate of mystery and to keep mystery alive in the world of intellect in the sense that things have, quote, further and deeper meaning 
and, quote, inexhaustible possibilities for more human knowledge, end of quote. Ultimately, this mystery, which just means not that we can't know it, but that it's always more knowable. That's the meaning of mystery. Ultimately, this mystery is a participation in the mystery of God, who is infinite, is an inexhaustible object of knowledge. Wade says that the theological way to state this relationship is to say that a Christian should find God in all things. That's very Jesuit. Live in a Jesuit world, you've heard that. Michael Hines developed something of the same idea of the importance of the principle of sacramentality in Catholic intellectual life. For Hines, education is training in sacramental beholding, so that anything that awakens, enlivens, and expands the imagination opens the vision and enriches the sensitivity of any human being. And anything that does that is a religious act. He observes that a Catholic university is not a place where we allow people to study mathematics or history or literature so that we can get them to sit through a religion course. Any field of study is religious because it's revelatory of grace. And this revelatory aspect is that sacramental idea which, um, you know, a piece came from O'Brien, a piece came from Heinz. And what I'm trying to uh, say is that it's a way of knowing that privileges the secular as the secular, but the secular doesn't remain secular because it has an, a depth dimension within it. And it's faith that gives us that depth vision. Yet, I would argue uh, that a sacrament is only relative for those of faith. Someone must point out what is to be seen. And this is the role of the educator. The epiphanies encountered in the poetry of Gerard Manley Hopkins, in the film Babette's Feast, or in Dante's Divine Comedy, all examples given by Heinz, are only epiphanies if they are witnessed. That is what a faith tradition, and ultimately a Catholic university does. And this is my contribution to this. I say, the role of a Catholic university is to witness, to see, to point out, to train in sacramental beholding, to use Heine's phrase. As the writer of the first letter of John declares, we declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. This life was revealed, and we have seen it and testified to it. That's 1 John 1, verses 1 and 2. Witnessing is not indoctrination. Witnessing does not violate academic freedom. Witnessing is telling what you see. Witnessing is a function of passing on a tradition, which is what universities do, whether they are secular or religious. Universities are custodians of history and tradition, as well as sentinels who watch and comment on current affairs, and scouts who search out new paths in scientific discoveries. The witnessing respects a sacramental way of knowing because it incorporates a visible or audible sign that signifies and points to ultimate meaning and God's gracious presence among God's people. Witnessing is a public institutional function of Catholic universities and not just the personal activities 
of individuals within them. So, some practical considerations. As we have learned from that great educator, Thomas Aquinas, that which is received is received according to the mode of the receiver. According to this maxim, the Catholic University is essential for the church to know its membership and how to communicate to it as well as to non-members. The church has to know the world deeply in order to evangelize the world. The church teaches, but first it must learn. And then it must integrate its faith in human knowledge. Gaudium et Spes, the pastoral constitution of the church in the modern world, is a good example of the integration of theological reflection with topics touching on social and political life. The opening lines of Gaudium et Spes begins by identifying the concerns of the church with those of the world, proclaiming, and I quote, the joys and hopes and sorrows and anxieties of people today, especially of those who are poor and afflicted, are also the joys and hopes, sorrows and anxieties of the disciple of Christ. And there is nothing truly human which does not also affect them. End of quote. The document skillfully integrates Christology, anthropology, and eschatology with its treatment of concrete issues in the temporal order, such as marriage and family, the proper development of culture, socioeconomic life, life in the political community, and the promotion of peace and encouragement of the community of nations. Each of the four chapters in part one of Gaudium et Spes culminates in a reference to the return of the Lord and the kingdom to come. Part two of the Constitution, which treats of specific questions of the temporal order, follows directly from part one, insofar as temporal problems can only be addressed adequately in the light of human destiny. The text thus avoids an extrinsicism where the world is autonomous and dealt with apart from its supernatural destiny. Similarly, the supernatural vocation of human beings is lived out in the midst of temporal realities. Integration of Catholicism in the academy will not happen within Catholic universities unless there are structures and activities to promote this integration. While a critical number of intellectually committed Catholic scholars are necessary to a Catholic institution, since Catholicity is born by people, not buildings, that alone does not make the institution Catholic. Most often, Catholic faculty members are trained in secular disciplines, in secular universities, and their training does not include formation regarding how to integrate their discipline and their faith. Conversely, many of those who are not Catholic are deeply committed to the mission and identity of Catholic universities. Even for Catholics, the role of faith in a university cannot be simply relegated to the private life of a faculty member any more than it should be delegated to the theology department or to campus ministry. It must be part of the public communal discourse of the academic community. This integration needs to be the topic of faculty development, programs and seminars, symposia, and speakers. Michael Lacey has suggested that some kind of institute for advanced study um, be devoted to the needs of Catholic scholars in all of the humanities and social sciences, and that maybe the institute approach in a huge university, I'm thinking like Marquette, Boston College, Notre Dame, not Steubenville. I think you're smaller to do things on a different kind of level, maybe. But um, is a, that this institute approach would be a better than marginally improving a great comprehensive university. You know, where you have uh, 12,000 students. 
Whatever the solution, structures for sustained dialogue are needed so that attention to Catholic identity is not intermittent and ad hoc. If Catholic universities are only concerned about their Catholic identity, however, that may signal only self-maintenance. The university needs to be actively engaged with Catholicism and Catholicism through the mediation of the university with contemporary culture. If the university is to be the place where the church does its thinking, returning to the concerns of Gus, Gustav Weigel and John Tracy Ellis articulated in the 1950s, universities must cultivate a Catholic intellectual life. This will be more than apologetics, the defense of the faith, but will make clear the positive contribution of faith in the church to human flourishing. Conversely, faith will be enriched by culture, which provides the context in which faith is planted, the historical time and place in which it bears witness to the sacramental dimension of all of creation. This integration is a gift that the church bears to all those who attend or work at a Catholic university, whatever their religious commitment. Thank you. Dr. Wood, what a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your astute observations with us. It was inspiring. Um, Dr. Wood expresses the heart of the matter rather beautifully in her thesis, where she says that a Catholic university is the place where the church's thinking occurs. And also in her secondary thesis, namely that faith is enriched by an encounter with the world. She describes very well <coughs> faith, both as the acceptance of revelation in whatever modality is received, and as a love for God and a volitional impulse to do as God wills. Faith, she said to us, is the acceptance by intellect and will that responds in love, trust, and fidelity to God's self-communication and revelation. The mind and the heart are both involved. It's very Pauline, very beautiful. Uh, in addition, <coughs> I want to underscore her, her insight that faith is not articulated, interpreted, or communicated apart from reason. Um, the quote from Tillich was very appropriate. Reason is the presupposition of faith, and faith is the fulfillment of reason. I like that expression, but that's a good quote. Um, but she diagnoses the, the situation in the last century rather, rather well in noting that the fuller engagement of Catholic intellectuals, theologians, and others with the secular world called for by Ellis and others has not been realized very well. Um, and finally, I want to just for now also affirm her insight regarding the relationship between the academy and the church as far as she goes. Uh, she opts for the sacramental model of George O'Brien but she beautifully enhances it with her insight that faith is required as a key, a kind of hermeneutical key to unlock the revelatory power of the secular world as sacrament. Uh, thus, the Catholic University serves principally then as witness to faith, and I see that as really the uh, climax of her presentation, that the institution, a Catholic University, as a witness to faith. This is something very dear to many of us here at Franciscan University, faculty, administration, and students. And she uh, gives a very good practical suggestion for uh, sustained dialogue to have structures for that. I, ha I have two principal questions uh, for Dr. Wood, and then I have some comments on how I understand those questions to be handled. Um, and then I'll sit down. First, uh, with respect to the account of faith, I'm curious to know how you understand Christ fitting into the account of faith. And then secondly, how do you understand the proper relationship between the church's magisterium 
with bishops in particular and academic theologians. Well, first, regarding Christ and faith, I have a few, a few thoughts. Uh, it was noted that faith is a first-order primary experience of revelation, and communi communicated faith is a second-order experience uh, necessitating uh, reason. Um, she quotes Tillich's, Paul Tillich's definition of revelation, quote, the experience in which an ultimate concern grasps the human mind and creates a community in which this concern expresses itself in symbols of action, imagination, and thought. Uh, one way to interpret this, giving it in my mind uh, the best reading, though I'm not sure that's what Tillich thinks, is that the, the ultimate concern that grasps us in Revelation is a person, is Christ. I understand Tillich thinks it is our awareness of our potential infinity, but I, I wonder if there's place there where Christ can, can, can be seen, the ultimate concern, the ultimate person, the divine person, Christ. And until it goes on to concern, this concern creates a community, and that community, it's well noted, is the church coming into being. But if it's the ultimate concern that gives the impetus for the coming into being of the church, perhaps if Christ is seen there as the ultimate concern, we can see Christ establishing uh, the church, but it appears uh, too vague, to, Tillich appears too vague uh, to me in, in the idea that the concern, this ultimate concern, is that Christ, I don't know, expresses itself in the community in, in symbols. Um, vague, not necessarily wrong. Uh, does this mean that Christ gives public expression himself of the ultimate truth and symbols, that reading uh, would, I believe, do justice to the truth of Christ as the one who publicly reveals the Father and his loving plan to humankind. Um, however, back to first order faith, uh, I, I submit that first order faith is not without reason's involvement. Um, in fact, it can even, it does, I believe, constitute a proclamation, a charisma, that of Christ, and the reception of him and what he says as true. So I think in the first order, there's reason present and active at that point. And even, dare I say, uh, propositions, understood in the broad sense, a lot of this hinges on what is meant by propositions. Um, I think that encounter with the ultimate reality, or the encounter with Christ, it is not without propositions in the broad sense. Taking charisma, for example, the proclamation of Christ and the gospel, itself as perhaps a species of, of proposition. And the propositions are not merely or exclusively formed then by systematic theologians, though we do love to do that, but we don't, we're not exclusively the formators of them. Um, for example, <laughs> Christ proclaims, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If so, encountering Christ by faith, then, is not limited to, but does, in fact, include understanding his claim, or even proposition, uh, which truly means rationally accepting with love the metaphysical reality that that, that proposition signifies, namely, Christ himself as our eternal life. Uh, here are a few more brief comments on the second question I have regarding the relationship between the bishops and the magisterium and, and academic theologians. Um, in the Lando Lake statement, uh, title was entitled The Idea of a Catholic University. Uh, in the very first article, we, we read this, quote, to perform its teaching and research functions effectively, the Catholic University must have a true autonomy and academic freedom in the face of authority of whatever kind, lay or clerical, external to the academic community itself. To say this, quote, continues is simply to assert that institutional autonomy and academic freedom are essential conditions of life and growth and indeed of survival for Catholic universities as for all universities, end quote. Uh, some have interpreted that portion of the document as definitively excluding 
the magisterium from exercising authority over academic theologians, but not everyone interprets it that way. Um, but there, this, this dovetails a bit with Dulles's juridical model as interpreted through uh, uh, George O'Brien. Um, the juridical model, the relationship between, well, in Dulles's work, it's a juridical model of the church, and then it's applied here uh, with O'Brien, and O'Brien rejects it, to, to relate a model or a type of the relationship between the church and uh, the Catholic Academy. Um, and the juridical model is, is characterized as one which establishes truth on the basis of authority, which, is, which, is, which appears unacceptable to the academic freedom granted uh, to disciplinary confidence. Um, first of all, I want to strongly affirm Dr. Wood's optic for the sacramental model and her enhancing of it uh, with the idea of witness, of, of perceiving and of passing on what's perceived and witnessed. Um, Dallas himself, uh, if my memory serves me well enough, noted several times that the model typology is useful to a point, but it has some limitations. Uh, sometimes nuances are not able to be recognized in the model typology. And then other times, people may misunderstand uh, the, uh, the model methodology as a zero-sum game in which one model is divided from another as if they were mutually exclusive. Well, I believe, for reasons that I'll mention in a second, that a juridical, or maybe a better term would be an ecclesiastical or ecclesial model, is frankly compatible with a sacramental model of witness, and in fact, uh, essentially compl completes it, complements it. Um, briefly, uh, faith in Christ includes the belief that he appointed certain disciples to be full-time witnesses of his resurrection, namely the apostles. He empowered and charged them with the ongoing proclamation of what he revealed, as we read in John 20, the resurrected Christ commissions the apostles as the Father sent me, so I send you. And he gave them at that time a special commission of the Holy Spirit for their mission. Pope Clement, in his letter to the Corinthians, teaches that the apostles were directed by Christ himself to pass on their mission to their successors, the Episcopal College with the successor Peter's head, as we understand it today. So authority here, it, it, the proper meaning of authority is critical. Authority in the Episcopal College is not properly their own authority. Uh, adapting the great Johann Müller's insights in his work symbolique, it really should be seen as Christ's authority in which they are <coughs> share. And thus, it can be said that it is Christ himself with his authority who continues to proclaim the charisma in and through the magisterium and preaching of the bishops. This is how the church interprets Luke chapter 10, verse 16, he who hears you hears me, and he who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. As we read in Lumen Gentium article 20, quote, therefore the sacred council teaches that bishops by divine institution have succeeded to the place of the apostles as shepherds of the church, and he who hears them hears Christ, and he who rejects them rejects Christ, and him who sent Christ. Uh, so, the authority in play here is, a, <clears throat> a, in a sense, it's, it's, it's Christic, not in a sense, it's Christic, and it's a servant authority, but it is authority, and the bishops who share in it serve as mediators of Christ's revelation. And, and in that revelation itself, we are instructed to obey the church authorities. But in addition to that, in De Verbum, Article 10, the, count, the Second Vatican II Council Fathers teach that, quote, the task of authentically interpreting the Word of God, whether written or handed on, has been entrusted exclusively to the living teaching office of the church whose authority is exercised in the name of Christ. And then the document goes on to say they're servants of uh, what's revealed. They're not masters of it. Uh, but the point here is that part of the genesis of faith experience, uh, we're talking about faith and reason, and I think this 
this is part of Catholic theology as well, is that the, the magisterium, the, the, the successors of the apostles, have an essential role in that. Now I know very well, I'm bringing up uh, an issue that is a profound um, <coughs> bone of contention um, that has been, not just for the last century, but, but through the church's history there have been issues, no doubt. Uh, before I mention two, and then I'm almost finished, uh, I'll say this. The church also teaches, for example, in 1990, the document Dona Veritatis, Instruction on the Ecclesial Vocation of the Theologian, that theologians have a very important vocation in the church to assist the bishops in understanding and articulating the mysteries of faith. So there is a magisterium of scholars as well, okay, that, that are to work with uh, the ecclesial magisterium. I think that in an attempt to foster the renewal of the distinctively Catholic identity of Catholic universities, John Paul II mandated uh, the profession of faith and the oath of fidelity in order to give, fr frankly, juridical structure uh, to the participation of theologians in the apostolate. Um, <clears throat> I'm skipping over something. Catholic uh, theologians then, I believe, first owe it to Christ and then also to our students to communicate clearly the truths of faith revealed by Christ and in such a way that shows those truths as profoundly reasonable and ultimately fulfilling of reason's natural impulses. Uh, magisterial authority then should properly, and it's not always this way, but properly it should come in not to establish the truth on its own basis, but to serve the truth received and established on the authority of Christ sent by the Father. All right, now, the elephant in the room. Two related but difficult phenomena. First, and they're nothing new. When theologians, what to do when theologians encounter difficulties with what bishops do, say, and teach? And that's not a problem limited to one kind of theologian or another. I think it's something that if you practice the, the, the craft long enough, you run into whether the bishops are alive or long ago. Uh, and second difficult phenomenon is uh, what to do when the magisterium intervenes, critical of the work of the theologian. What then? For example, Steve, Steve Tempier, bishop of uh, of Paris after Aquinas' death, condemning certain Aristotelian propositions that, without naming Aquinas, certainly were some that Aquinas held. What to do? I'm not answering those questions. I'm raising them just so you don't think I'm ignoring a huge issue. Well, finally, I'd like to end my uh, remarks here, my comments in praise of Dr. Wood. She told us, the theology of the church must look beyond themselves. Reason has much to offer faith, and the secular world to offer faith, and vice versa. An integration is what we are looking for, and yet what we see is greater fragmentation. And not just interdisciplinarily speaking, but within disciplines themselves, to wit, uh, within theology, there's fragmentation. Uh, due to, I, I don't want to say over-specialization because I'm in favor of substantive studies, but uh, perhaps a failure to collaborate, communicate, speak the same language, it's tough. You can't be, I can't be a jack of all trades, it's tough. Uh, this is a principal theme that Dr. Wood nails, and it's also central to ex corde, namely to promote the integration of faith and reason uh, uh, the Catholic world, uh, the Catholic academy, and the secular world and culture, um, theology, and secular disciplines within the Catholic university. And Dr. Wood underscores the foundation for such integration adroitly by inducing Adam and Spence. The temporal order is not foreign to the order of faith. All things temporal have, a, by providence, a supernatural destiny. Grace works in and through nature. Grace is not extrinsic or in addition to nature. 
Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.